0: If the National Party is re-elected in two weeks' time, it will proceed with its plans to sell stakes in major state assets. This Radio New Zealand Insight looks at National's mixed ownership model and asks if it can avoid the mistakes of the privatisations of the 1980s and 90s.
1: Over more than a decade from 1987, Labour and National Government sold 40 state assets for close to $20 billion. By the end of the 1990s, those assets were estimated to be worth double that amount.
2: Nearly 80 percent of the value of those was captured offshore, and at the end of the 90s, we'd gone from 46 billion overseas debt um, in the 1989 to 102 billion. So, this whole process actually worsened. Uh, our debt position. And one of the ways that happens, which is crucial to this argument, is that of course we end up being very reliant on overseas ownership. And that results in capital repayments and dividends going back. And that of course worsens our external debt position.
1: The Council of Trade Unions, Peter Conway, believes selling assets again could tip an already dangerously indebted country into penury. The National Party and some critics of previous asset sales believe it could rev up a sick share market, enriching New Zealanders along the way. I'm Nigel Sterling, and in this insight, I ask will asset sales spark a revival in the economy or drive it over a cliff? As a government, we want to acquire $33 billion worth of new assets
3: over the next uh, five years. We only have a number of options. One is to borrow more that will not be acceptable to the rating agencies. The second option is to not build that infrastructure that will not deliver us the jobs and the economy we want. The third option, Mr Speaker, is to release some capital from assets that we already own. And so, Mr Speaker, through the course of this year, we will be finalising our policy on mixed ownership models, where we will be looking to control 51% of Meridian, Mighty River, Genesis and Solid
1: Energy. A fortnight after the Prime Minister, John Key, made that statement at the annual opening of Parliament, a devastating second earthquake hit Christchurch. The February quake killed 182 people and it also cut a swathe through the government's finances. Six months later, the country's credit rating was cut for the first time since the 1990s. The world had become less confident New Zealand could pay its mounting bills. Asset sales loom even larger now as a way for the government to afford new schools, hospitals and roads without plunging itself into further debt.
3: Mind me, we have a Prime Minister.
1: The last Prime Minister forced to grapple with such a large deficit was David Longey in 1984. The foreign exchange crisis, precipitated by his predecessor, Sir Robert Muldoon, had left the government's accounts in a dreadful state. David Longey recounted briefings from officials in the TVNZ documentary Revolution in 1997.
4: We actually were reduced to asking our diplomatic posts abroad how much money they could draw down on their credit cards. That is the extent of the calamity that had been ground into us by the briefings that we got.
1: Asset sales helped to dig the longy Labor Government out of its debt hole. But many of the assets were in terrible shape. David Cagle followed Sir Roger Douglas as Labour's Finance Minister and oversaw a number of the sales. He denies he presided over a fire sale. I
3: was involved in the sale of New Zealand steel and the same thing was said. The fact is we got only one viable bidder. Um, yes, we had put $2,000 million into that works uh, as a government, and we were able to sell it for only $300 million. That says something about uh, the economics of that enterprise. Um,
1: but does it make it a fire sale? No, I don't believe it does. The fund manager and newspaper columnist Brian Gaynor worked at stockbroker Jardin & Co. in the 1980s. He moved to Longy's office in August 1988, advising him while assets like the Bank of New Zealand and Telecom were sold. Brian Gaynor says one of the biggest flashpoints inside the Longy government was asset sales. He says many could have been sold to New Zealanders through a share offer to the public, known as an IPO or initial public offer. Most of these assets were instead sold to industry players through a trade sale or local entrepreneurs.
4: Telecom, Bank of New Zealand, petrocorp we were talking about the big ones. They certainly were not uh, basket cases that needed trade sales. I mean, to me at the time, the philosophy was driven by Treasury, and Treasury's philosophy was to maximise the value that you can get for selling the assets, and that meant that you had a trade sale rather than sold the shares through an IPO to New Zealanders. And uh, I disagree entirely that New Zealanders wouldn't have bought onto these assets. They would have loved to buy on those assets, but they were never given a chance. And I don't think the debate in government at the time ever considered a partial privatisation through an IPO to the public. I mean, all the documents that were sent to Cabinet at the time were about maximising the highest price that you could get for the sale of those assets, and that meant a trade sale.
1: Was that legitimate at the time, given the, the, the mess that the government's books were in?
4: Well, I think it's very short-sightedness, and to me, if you look what the model was adopted in most other countries, particularly Australia, with the sale of the CBA Bank, for example, which is the Commonwealth Bank, that was done through partial privatisation, the sale of a certain amount of shares to begin with to the public, and then a second sale by the government to the public, and then a third sale, the same with Telstra. And if you take that kind of view, they certainly got much higher values than they would have by selling 100% in a trade sale.
1: Newly privatised state-owned enterprises often reap windfall returns for their new owners as they restructure the businesses and cut costs. In New Zealand, those gains went straight into the pockets of foreigners or well-connected locals. Brian Gaynor says Americans were the beneficiaries when Telecom was sold in 1990.
4: They thought that Telecom was a bit of a basket case, that it was the old Post and Telegraph's um, uh, government department, that they got £4.25 for it. And I remember at the time the huge celebrations thinking, my gosh, we got £4.25 for the company, aren't we lucky? That company was worth £16 on the share market a few years later, so they got about 25% of what the value was worth. Of course, they didn't realise that by having so little regulation that the new owners were able to take huge advantage of the company. Then, of course, the government came in with the regulation after the American shareholders had sold out and New Zealanders had bought shares from them. New Zealanders bought their shares probably at 9 10 $11, and they're back at $2.50 at the moment.
1: Brian Gaynor says the American owners systematically ran down telecom's assets.
4: I had meals with some of these Americans in the early 1990s, and after a few drinks they talked to you um, about the strategies they'd adopted in relation to telecom. They saw a wonderful opportunity to make money out of a naive sale by our government to them, and they took full advantage of that.
1: I'm on central Wellington's Featherston Street outside the glass tower offices of investment banker Rob Cameron. It was a task force that he chaired in 2009 that got the ball rolling on Nationals plans for asset sales. He was also an up and coming official across town at the Treasury when David Longy's government came to power in 1984.
3: The first thing that I think is important to do is not be too revisionist and understand the context that New Zealand was in. It was in a desperate state with a fixed exchange rate, very large fiscal deficit, and very large overseas borrowings, and a very large current account deficit. So, with a peg, not unlike the Greek situation, being tied into the euro... And we were looking very bad and we had bankers from the IMF and the World Bank looking at us at the time. Things needed to be done quickly. And in that environment, you need to be careful about being too precious about the decision.
1: Nonetheless, Rob Cameron believes the asset sales of the 1980s in particular were a missed opportunity for New Zealand and one the country's been paying for ever since. He says the results are an overvalued housing market and an underdeveloped share market if we'd floated some of these
3: assets would the experience through the 80s of our share market have been better not worse and the answer is probably yeah because a lot of the experience through the 80s was highly leveraged property and investment companies these would not have been that these would have been a um, and you know there was a, a fully diversified set of property and investment companies but <laughs> but but this would have given a much broader more conservative end to the market which would have been looked like only you know average performers in the in the in those years but great performers over the long run.
1: National's mixed ownership model of asset sales would allow the government to retain a minimum 51 percent ownership with the remainder sold to investors. It's common across OECD countries and is in operation here already through the government's 72% ownership of Air New Zealand. John Palmer is the chairman of Air New Zealand and of Solid Energy, one of the SOEs that National wants to sell a stake in if re-elected. Solid Energy has ambitious plans for alternative energy sources from coal seam gas in the Waikato to exploiting Southland's lignite reserves. The projects, while potentially big earners, could cost a billion dollars or more to develop. Money John Palmer says neither solid energy or the government has to spare.
5: These are very significant national assets and we think that the ultimate control of those assets should reside with the Crown. But to think that the development of capital associated with bringing those assets into production in whatever of those forms should be funded by the Crown, we don't think it makes any sense, and therefore a partnership of some sort with other capital um, we think is absolutely
1: critical. So this is of such a scale? I mean, it can't be funded through retained earnings or um, profits back in, from the business?
5: Uh, certainly on the scale of our ambition, it, it would be not possible to fund them in any way out of, out of retained earnings. And we know that the availability of development uh, partners is something that we think um, it, those partnerships are readily available internationally.
1: John Palmer says the government can't lose from the sale of a minority stake in a company with the growth potential of solid energy.
5: If you had a company that's worth $3 billion, the ability for the Crown to sell down to 51%, uh, to use that $1.5 billion for the much needed issues of simply balancing the Crown accounts, and potentially in a, a different form of a listed company for that company to then turn a $3 billion company into a $6 billion company in not a very long time frame by being released from the political constraint so that the Crown ends up still with a $3 billion asset and in the meantime has uh, been able to add something to the Crown accounts and still has all of the ownership rights that it had at 100%. To me, that is very, very compelling for the economic well-being of New Zealand,
1: but who will reap the financial bonanza from the minority stakes and the assets sold by a national government? Will it be New Zealanders? Would you consider buying shares in the SOEs? Yeah, they have to be a pretty good uh, bet. If um, you know they've got a good track record,
5: we all understand them. Um, they're assets that, uh, that that are essential. Um, Things like energy, everybody's got to use it.
1: Have you got money in the share market at the moment?
5: No, I haven't, but I have been an investor previously. No, probably not. I just don't have the the,
2: the money to invest at, at this time.
1: Possibly, possibly. Yeah, probably, possibly. Um, are you in KiwiSaver? No. No, not my. And partly... Because I don't believe that we should be selling assets and partly because I don't have the money. Are you in KiwiSaver? Yes, I am in KiwiSaver. The Council of Trade Unions, Peter Conway, says New Zealanders are unlikely to hang on to shares in SOEs for very long.
2: If you look at the situation with contact energy that was about 60% New Zealand at the beginning, it's about 16.5% now. So the government's caught, I think, that if it does not, go to the worldwide market on this, it has to accept a lower price. And if it does say it will go to New Zealand investors first, then is it going to forbid them from on-selling? So,
3: you know, we'll have to wait and see. Today I'm announcing that the government, if it's re-elected next month, uh, will proceed with a one-off KiwiSaver auto-enrolment exercise in 2014 15 Uh, subject to returning to budget surplus in that year. Uh, This is another step in the government's programme to build genuine national savings. As we signalled in the budget... The
1: Finance Minister, Bill English, outlining his plans for all workers to be automatically enrolled in KiwiSaver if National is re-elected. Officials estimate the move could push membership in the savings scheme past two million by 2014, nearly half the population. Brian Gaynor, a director of KiwiSaver provider Milford Asset Management, says shares in the SOEs will be snapped up by KiwiSaver managers.
4: Because what you want to do if you have a long-term superannuation scheme, which of course KiwiSaver is, you want to match the liabilities, which is the amount of money that will have to be paid out to people when they get to 65, and the assets and infrastructure assets like electricity generation companies are ideal for KiwiSaver funds.
1: The New Zealand Superfund and Iwi are also lining up, bolstering the government's claim that 90% of the ownership of the SOEs will stay in local hands. But Brian Gaynor says those plans could still come unstuck especially if the international investment banks advising the government and the treasury hijack the sales process
4: if you look say for example at oakland international airport what happened there there was an international broker was given the job of um, doing the ipo and that was an ipo and that that worked very well but What they did was they gave a bias towards offshore investors. And if I remember rightly, I may get the days a little bit wrong, is the shares were um, listed on the market on a Monday or a Tuesday, probably a Tuesday, and the institutional investors didn't have to pay for their shares until the Friday. Most of them actually sold their shares in the first three days and got their proceeds at the same time as they had to pay for it and made a very quick profit. And, you know, you do have to manage these things because the major investment banks will have a tendency to favour their big clients and often those are offshore institutions. So I think it is very important that the process is managed so that the investment banks are working for the government rather than the government working for the investment banks.
1: Allocations of shares will be a key to the government's aim of spreading the ownership of SOEs through the population. Simon Allen advised the government on the sale of Auckland Airport in 1998. And the following year, his firm, ABN Amro, advised it on the sale of Contact Energy. The government sold a cornerstone 40% stake to American energy company Edison. 220,000 New Zealanders also bought shares, giving Contact twice as many shareholders as the next biggest company on the exchange.
6: Because of its size, you didn't have complete participation by all intermediaries in the New Zealand market. So you did have the ability for people who wanted to buy shares to not get the opportunity to buy them. And that's what caused quite some angst at the time amongst intermediaries on behalf of their clients and directly from clients. And small investors in New Zealand. Now with contact energy there was a lot more stock available it was a much bigger issue and the process that was employed there was far more transparent anyone who had invested in the markets through any of those intermediaries in the previous I think five or ten years were contacted and given the opportunity to pre-register their interest to invest in contact energy and that's probably a reasonably accepted process around the world for these types of issues now.
1: While 100,000 New Zealanders still have shares in contact, a decade on from the sale, it's majority owned by Australia's Origin Energy.
4: One of the reasons that investors sold out was because the feeling was that these overseas owners were treating the company as if it was theirs rather than it was a company that was owned by a whole pile of shareholders, including New Zealand retail investors. Now, hopefully, the government has no intention of selling 50% of Meridian Uh, Genesis or Mighty River Power to an offshore interest and then doing an IPO to New Zealand investors. That's not on the plans at the moment and hopefully it will never be on the plans. And as long as we um, have domestic New Zealand ownership, a majority, even if the government owns over 50%, most people will be very happy with that.
1: The government is looking at other ways of keeping foreign ownership of the SOEs to a minimum. It says no shareholder apart from itself will be able to own more than 10% of the shares. But weigh down the shares with too many restrictions and it may limit share price gains, leaving local investors disillusioned and eager to sell. Foreigners would in all likelihoods be the buyers of some of those dumped shares. Simon Allen says asset sales are a balancing act.
6: You don't really want to frighten off any potential investor in your market for any particular reason because they form part of the group that buy and sell the securities and that's important for your future share prices.
1: But what if new private owners, more concerned with profit than people, manage to wrest control of the SOEs away from the government?
4: The government is admitting the electricity industry reforms of recent years have largely failed after an investigation showing massive overcharging by power companies. The Commerce Commission's inquiry out today says the four biggest electricity companies made $4.3 billion more than they should have, but it also finds they did not do anything illegal. The Energy Minister, Gerry Brownlee, gave this warning to power companies earlier today.
0: Oh, I'm saying it would be uh, an uh, audacious act on the part of any power company to
1: raise electricity prices while I've got this sort of uh, allegation. The Energy Minister, Gerry Brownlee, quickly swung into action after the Commerce Commission released those findings in mid-2009. Generators were forced to swap plants and lines companies allowed to enter the retail electricity market all in the name of boosting competition. But will it be enough to protect consumers if the government has less say in the running of the power companies? The lawyer and former ACT MP, Stephen Franks, was on the group that advised Gerry Brownlee on those changes. The
7: question is whether you've got effective competition. I don't think
1: there's any evidence that
7: retaining government ownership protects people against being gouged on their power price. When politicians own things, they love finding ways of extracting money without it looking like a tax. In fact, if it's relatively inefficient ownership, you're more likely to see prices going up over time. But I think there is clearly a question whether your competition law and whether your structure will maintain effective competition. I think there's pretty good signs at the moment that the reforms that Jerry Brownlee brought in are, are working. You've seen the, a much higher rate of customer churning, and you've seen signs of a more active um, investment. You know, people are building new power stations. Ultimately, price of power will be determined by whether there's a surplus or a shortage. It's scarcity that puts prices up, and that depends on whether people are investing, and at the moment, companies are investing.
1: But some of the electricity reforms pushed by National have failed to get off the ground. A hedged market designed to protect power companies' customers from spikes in the price of electricity supplied by rivals is yet to get going. An Auckland University, economist Tim Hazeldean says further restructuring, if it is needed, could be harder if the SOEs are in private hands.
5: The government has a real moral hazard problem here as, as a privatiser because of a utility, because to get the best price for it, it sort of more or less has to promise that it won't then move in later on and regulate it. And a private owner might well decide the best thing to do is to put power prices up. These are utilities, they're not like supermarkets or clothing factories and things like that operating in a normal competitive environment.
1: He argues foreign ownership of the power companies could be an even more difficult scenario for future governments.
5: How much of a fuss would these foreign owners make if the government or the Commerce Commission decided it had to intervene a bit and, and push prices down and things? How politically free are we to manage these utilities, and that's what they are, basic infrastructural utilities, if ownership is dispersed and widely held, especially outside the country?
1: Stephen Franks isn't so sure. He says regulators and governments often hit foreign owners of companies harder because they don't have the backing of local politicians. It is very clear that
3: we must stop deluding ourselves about our wealth and stop spending
1: money that we do not have. New Zealand had been down the path of part privatisation before it bailed out Air New Zealand in 2001. Despite its name, the bank I'm in now, the Bank of New Zealand, hasn't been owned by New Zealanders since 1992, when Jim Bolger's government sold it just five years after it had been partly privatised. The bank was sold to National Australia Bank after taxpayer bailouts costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Investment bankers Michael Fay and David Rishwhite had taken a stake in the bank in 1989 after it had run into problems with loans in Australia. The chief economist at Fay Rishwhite, Ian Dixon, says Bulger's finance minister, Ruth Richardson, wanted it gone. He says she essentially conducted a fire sale. The mixed ownership model had not worked.
0: Firereach had a minority interest and it was floated, but the Crown had the ability to control that. I mean, certainly the Crown was running the process, and there wasn't the sort of communication I would expect to happen if you had a consortium selling an asset, um, even if there was a, an, an element of public involvement in it. So, yeah, I think there was one where hearts ruled heads as far as that was concerned. I think yeah, the incoming national government was surprised by the BNZ problems at presented them with a problem they didn't want, that they needed to sort out. It had a fiscal cost associated with it. The finance minister at the time, I think, and I can understand her perspective, felt uncomfortable about the whole situation and wanted it gone. I think that's a quite a natural human reaction, but it wasn't necessarily the best from a value perspective in that particular transaction.
1: Ian Dixon foresees similar tensions again. The sort of situations I see is, is vocal minorities. So.
0: You know, lead steer investors who have a different view about corporate strategy or about capital structure or dividend policy and are, are vocal and articulate about that which yeah you know, leads to potential conflict with the majority now for those situations to happen there has to be a basis for that now, of course strategic direction is another another thing scope of business you know whether or not to expand or undertake major transactions these are all the things which you know normally will create a level of Controversy around a, a listed company. But when the Crown is involved, you've got an, an added dimension to it as well. The other point that will crop up is that obviously the Crown wears many hats. So it wears a hat as an investor, it wears a hat as a regulator, potentially. So that could lead to issues of, of conflict. Now, that's not to say that these things aren't resolvable. It's just, it's different. You know, it's different from what we have at the moment. My experience of being in government and being out of government and dealing with government is... Ministers and officials typically like having their own way and that may not always be the case. We've learned to live with an MMP environment where politicians don't always get their own way. Another group of people are going to have to learn to live with that in a different setting. So it's new and it's different and there'll be a settling in period.
1: National has tackled head on the mistakes committed by both major parties selling state assets in the 1980s and 90s. But cannot avoid repeating them. The hands-off regulation that accompanied the sale of telecom seems to have been replaced with a more vigilant approach. But will it be enough to prevent private interests from gouging consumers in the long run? The Labour Party says it's economic lunacy to sell assets to invest in roads, schools and broadband. It says it could finance new infrastructure through reinvesting the huge dividends it claims will roll in from fully owned SOEs year after year. National says its restructuring of the electricity sector means those big payouts are a thing of the past. And will asset sales be enough to kickstart a share market that has failed to provide firms with a viable source of investment capital since 1987? Or will it follow so many of the others and slowly drain dividends and profits offshore as New Zealand shareholders succumb to foreign buyers? Both seem possible. I'm Nigel Sterling and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radio or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. The programme was written and presented by me Nigel Sterling. It was produced by Philippa Tully. Technical production was by William Saunders.